Welcome again to City Life, the first day of December. It's the first day of, for many of us, Advent. Uh, some people start early, some people start a little late, but uh, we're celebrating here this Christmas season. We're actually doing a sermon series on the Holy Spirit. You might think that's counterintuitive, but you'll understand why in just a minute. And I wanted to mention that it's a, a, a joint sermon series. It's been a while since we've done this, but maybe you're thinking a joint sermon series. What are you even talking about? We're one church in two locations. So both our Newport News Campus and here in Suffolk will be in this series on the Holy Spirit throughout the month of December. So maybe you'll think, man, this is heavier. This is so deep. I wish I could go deeper. Then you can double dip, right? You can check out the podcast. You can see what Fred's teaching there in Newport News. He's a phenomenal teacher. Uh, I don't think many people preach on the Holy Spirit better than he does. So I would even encourage you, double dip, right? Go, go get the podcast, go watch their stream, and, and hear what he's preaching. But we're both going to be working through this series on the Holy Spirit here through Christmas. Because in the season of giving, I think it's important to remember that Jesus asks God the Father to give us a gift. It says in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, if you love me, Obey my commandments. How many of you say that to your kids, right? <laughs> it says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Before we go any further, let's pray. Lord God, I ask and Holy Spirit, I ask that even as it says in this passage, that you would lead us into truth. God, so much of the Trinity, so much of the Holy Spirit is a mystery, Lord God. But I pray that we wouldn't minimize that, but instead it would challenge us to worship you on deeper levels. God, your grandeur and your majesty, God. But I pray that we would have our eyes opened to your goodness and the good gift that we receive. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So when we closed our last series that we worked, it was called Autumn on the Mount, because for the entire autumn we spent time in the Sermon on the Mount, I joked that we were going to do a quiz at the end, and, and we never did. But I actually want to start this sermon series just with a short quiz. In your seats, don't have to do anything, but maybe uh, it's true or false, okay? And maybe if you're competitive, you can be with the, the neighbor next to you, or you want some accountability, you can work through it with your neighbor next to you. But it's just true or false quiz, a Christmas quiz, Christmas Facts. What does the Bible say? First question. The Bible says Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem because of a decree by Caesar Augustus. True or false? It's true. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, you see that account. True or false? The Bible says Mary rode a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Yeah, it's false. Nowhere in Scripture does it mention a donkey. I've never been nine months pregnant. I probably wouldn't ride on a, want to ride on a donkey for hundreds of miles at that state. So we don't know. But the Bible doesn't say. Right? The Bible says that the wise men found Jesus lying in a manger in the town of Bethlehem. That too is false. Right? We, we see in Matthew that they arrived to, at his home when he's probably two years old. Right? They started this journey and it took years to get there. So much dedication. That's a sermon and a story in and of itself. And then the Bible said that there were three wise men, true or false. Right. It says there's three gifts. We don't know how many of them there were. You might see a common theme with the false, false, false. We can go on and on, right? The angels, it doesn't say that they sang to the shepherds, right? It doesn't say that Mary gave birth the first night when they arrived. There's so many different things that through maybe just songs and, and pop culture have become a part of our Christmas. And really there's nothing wrong with that. 
I don't think those details, because we think one or the other, is going to affect whether we go to heaven or hell, right? But I share all that because there was a Lifeway, they do a lot of research, and they conducted a survey just this year. And they surveyed some 3,000 people that are churchgoers and believers, and they asked them these questions about what they believe about God and theology and the church and ethics. And they did this survey, 3,000 people this year, they did it in 2016, and they did it in 2014. So there's a, a lot of answers that they drew from. And they asked so many different questions, and actually in our series in January, we're going to look at some of these questions they asked, but I want to look at two tonight. The first is 78% of people, an overwhelming majority, almost 80% of people thought that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. Well, clearly that's false if you read scripture. He's one part of the Trinity into eternity, right? He wasn't created at Christmas. He wasn't created at creation. It's false, but 78%. And 59% of people considered the Holy Spirit to be a force, not a personal being. Like, use the force, Luke. Like, I guess that's what they think the Holy Spirit is. 59% of people. Right? But if you read Scripture, again, you, you realize that's false because he's an eternal member within the Trinity. And these beliefs, which, again, an overwhelming majority of people hold on to, they don't line up with the Bible. But they also point to a reality of, of our faith, and that is, man, the Trinity is hard to understand. Amen? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each eternal, equal, distinct, each one could say I, each one can say he, and yet they're one throughout eternity, right? And teachers and preachers, well-meaning, will, will dial it in or try to teach it sometimes with pictures and images, and, and it's, I think it's well-meaning, and I've had people share them with me. I've seen them in books, but I think the more we try to minimize the mystery of the Trinity, the more in trouble we can get. I've had people tell me, and I read it in a book that I was studying to, to prepare for this series, that the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, the Trinity, it's like water because it can be in, in vapor, it can be liquid, or it can be ice. How many of you have heard that analogy before? Except that's the heresy of modalism, right? This heresy that says that God isn't three different people, he just reveals himself in three different ways. This was rejected all the way back in the fourth century. I've had somebody else explain it to me it, it, it's he's like the sun right there's the sun and then there's the heat that the sun gives off and then there's the light that the sun gives off but that's the heresy of arianism right that jesus and the holy spirit they're creations of the father but they're not one with the father another analogy maybe you've heard it before that, that the, the trinity is like a three-leaf clover but that's partialism where each being is part of the Trinity, but no, they're each one distinct, eternal. It's confusing. It's the Trinity. Welcome, right? The Trinity is a mystery. Some of some people will write it off because it's illogical. Others will try to rationalize it and lean towards the heretical. But trust me, it makes preaching on it slightly intimidating, right? So let me say from the jump that. At the end of this month, looking at the Holy Spirit, you're not going to completely understand the Holy Spirit. You're not going to completely understand these mysteries of God. And yet looking at that survey, I think it's imperative that we spend some serious time looking especially at the Holy Spirit. And I say all this from the beginning so that we'll embrace 
the mystery and not attempt to minimize it. There's a great quote by Eugene Peterson when I'm working through some difficult passages in scripture. It's a great quote. He says, mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. You know, the cry of our age, the cry of enlightenment is that we can figure it out. That we can figure out what's going on, and if we can't, then we begin to doubt its validity. And this has led to disenchantment. There's no mystery. There's no awe. There's no wonder. And over time, if we live like this, it can cripple our worship. Right? Mysteries of God shouldn't cause me to shut down. The mysteries of God where I realize there's more to God than even I can understand, that should inspire us to worship this God who's more grand than we can comprehend. And really, to me, it's almost natural that I wouldn't understand the supernatural, that the finite wouldn't be able to understand the infinite. Right? It makes sense that God wouldn't make sense, almost, if that makes sense. C.S. Lewis was a little more eloquent. <laughs> he said, reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It's a religion that you could not have guessed. But if I offered us just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. It has just that queer twist about it that real things have. You know, I would, again, tell you tonight, it's okay if you don't completely understand the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 19, when Paul goes to the people in Ephesus who had been baptized in water, and he asked them, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? They look at him and they're like, what are you even talking about, right? They didn't even understand the concept that the Holy Spirit even existed, and yet because of their sincere faith, they were baptized in the Spirit. But then we also see in Acts chapter 7, before Stephen is stoned, he condemns the religious leaders of that time because he says they resisted the Holy Spirit. So what do we see in Acts in these accounts? It's okay if the Holy Spirit remains a little bit of a mystery, right? But it's not okay if it's unwanted and if it's rejected. We serve a generous and good God, as we talked about during worship. Any gift from God is a gift that you want. Any gift from God is a gift you want. And I may not understand everything, but if God is offering it to me, then I want all of it. And when we're talking about gifts, you know, just this picture of a gift, some of y'all are like, what on earth does he have a giant Hulk action figure for? But imagine you get this on Christmas, right? And you're a kid. What happens within the first five minutes? You rip it that thing open. I would be using this to hit on my little sister, like, you know, whatever. He'd be fighting my other action figures. Like, you would, be, you would not leave it in the box. You would not just observe this gift. Look at it. You know, I got hundreds of action figures, Star Wars action figures, from like the 80s. And apparently, if I would have left these things in the packaging and not abused them to death like I did, they'd have been worth like hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. There were, I guess, smart people and collectors back then that would buy these toys, not open it, and then just go store it on a shelf knowing that one day it would be worth something. At whatever age I was, I didn't have that kind of discernment, right? I ripped those things open immediately, and I would play with them. Because I didn't want to just observe and look at these toys. I wanted to play with them. I wanted to experience them. And I share all that because I think sometimes with Jesus, we can act more like collectors than kids or children of God. Because I think sometimes we'll admire his life, but we fail to realize that we're also called to experience his life. And don't get me wrong. We, we, again, we receive him. 
We receive salvation. We admire the life he lived. We're grateful for the fact that he lived perfectly and gave his life for us so that we could have salvation. We appreciate the gospel, but we never receive that life for ourselves. In the end, Jesus is admired, but his life and the life that he lived, we never get a taste of it. We never experience it. And what I would tell you this Christmas is that the Holy Spirit wants to help you not just behold the life of Jesus, but to unwrap it and experience it for yourself. He doesn't want you to just observe it. He wants you to begin to experience it in your life. And I'm moving that because it's massive. I can't even see some of you. But consider this. It's possible to have a saved soul but a wasted life. It's possible to have a saved soul and still waste your life, right? Go be a holy hermit somewhere and never engage in the purposes and callings that God has on your life. The great commission, the great commandment, and just kind of do you and wait to get to heaven. But the Holy Spirit wants to help us unlock life. Again, not just admire the life that Jesus lived, but experience it for ourselves. I think it's also possible to have Christian ideas but never walk in Christ's power. You look at other statistics about our nation where 75% of our country would say that they're believers, they're Christians, and I'm not here to judge one way or the other. But if three quarters of our nation is the salt of the earth, man, when I eat food, I only need but a pinch of salt and it changes the whole dish. Why aren't we having more of an impact? Why aren't we influencing our nation more than we already are? And I would contend that we don't walk in the life that Christ has for us because we've neglected the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, it says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then in verse 18, I love the message version. It says, we are transfigured much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become more like him, Jesus Christ. We're called in our lives to look more and more like Jesus Christ, this process of sanctification we talk about so often here. But again, could it be that we're not experiencing this gift, the life of Jesus Christ that's available to us because we're largely indifferent to the person of the Holy Spirit? The brilliant author and minister of the 19th century, Andrew Murray, he once said, all that in the old covenant had been promised by God, all that had been manifested and brought nigh, which is near <laughs> to us of divine grace in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is now to make our very own. Through him, all the promises of God are fulfilled. All grace and salvation in Christ become a personal possession and experience. Again, he doesn't just want us to behold the promises, behold the hope of Christmas, behold the life of Jesus. He wants us to take possession of those promises, take possession of that hope, and begin to experience the life that Jesus promises. And I want to unwrap the Holy Spirit bit by bit together. And in doing so, I believe that we'll begin to unwrap this life that's promised to us. You know, Jesus himself speaks to the Holy Spirit often, and one such time is in John chapter 7. It's John 7, verse 37, where it says, On the last day, the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said with a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So here we have Jesus 
talking about the Holy Spirit, pointing to the Holy Spirit at what was a massive religious festival. Jerusalem was packed with people that wanted to worship God. And Jesus stands up in front of all of them and he's like, it's great that you worship. It's great that you know the law. It's great that you know the word. But do you know my spirit? Do you know the Holy Spirit? And I would ask you tonight, do you? It's great that you're here to worship. It's great that you know the word and that's inspired you to come here to pursue God. Do you know the Holy Spirit? Again, I want to unwrap the Holy Spirit as a church family here this Christmas. And I think it's important when you dig into the Holy Spirit that you look at, you look at the fruit of the Spirit. You look at the gifts of the Spirit. You look at the function of the Spirit. We're going to look at all these things in this series. We're not going to get through it all tonight. Because tonight I want to focus on the person of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, again, it's a person. It's a who. And it's a mistake to dive right into, okay, what are the gifts and what's the power? Because then you end up where most of our nation is. You think the Holy Spirit is a force and forget, no, the Holy Spirit is a person within the Trinity. John 14 through 16, again, he speaks to the Holy Spirit again and again, and he uses the pronouns he, himself, and him 19 times talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. In the same way that you would maybe meet somebody here for the first time and begin to engage and learn about them, I just want to look at three things with the Holy Spirit here tonight. His personality, his history within Scripture, and his work. What does he do? But to start with his personality, I just want to run through a list. If you want all these verse references, I'm going through them fast. They'll be in the notes online. But when you speak to the Holy Spirit, he has a mind. We see it in Romans 8. He has a will. We see it in 1 Corinthians 12. He has emotions, Romans 15. He can be made to feel sorrow, Ephesians 4. He can be insulted, Hebrews 10. He can be resisted. Again, we saw that in Acts 7. He can be lied to. See that in Acts 5. He comforts, Acts 9. He speaks, Hebrews 3. He teaches, 1 Corinthians 2. He's a person. A.W. Tozer clears up any confusion when he, I love this quote, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not enthusiasm. He's not courage. He's not energy. He's not the personification of all good qualities like Jack Frost is the personification of cold weather. Actually, the Holy Spirit is not the personification of anything. He is a person, the same way you are a person, but not material substance. He has individuality. He is one being and not another. He has will and intelligence. He has knowledge and sympathy and ability to love and see and think. He can hear, speak, desire, grieve, and rejoice. He is a person. So again, bottom line, the Holy Spirit is not some it. He's not some force. Why is this significant for us to understand? Why do we uh, behold this truth and how do we apply it to our lives? Well, the Holy Spirit is not a product for show. The Holy Spirit is not a power to wield. The Holy Spirit is a person to know. And if we get this wrong, we can end up like Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, who sees the apostles walking in the power of the Spirit. He's like, I want that, right? And he gets rebuked because he's making this mistake, thinking it was a power to wield. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. One of the things, I say it already to Raj, and probably goes in one ear out the other because he can't understand English, but I'm going to teach him. You love people, you use things, right? I'm teaching him functions, like he throws my cell phone. No, Raj, we throw balls, right? Cell phones are not for throwing. He doesn't understand any of it yet. It's just all, I'm just talking. But I'm going to teach him. Love people, use things, right? So often in our culture, we love things and we use people. Nobody likes to be used, right? Nobody likes to be robbed of dignity in that way. And I would say the same is true of the Holy Spirit. The same is true. If the Holy Spirit were 
a force or a power, then we, we would rightfully lust for more of that power or that force. How can I have more of it? But if the Holy Spirit is a person, the proper perspective isn't lust but love. How can I give more of myself to the Holy Spirit? If we seek the Holy Spirit merely for our own benefit, for our own power through the gifts and the fruits, relationship will be elusive because the Holy Spirit's passion is for the benefit and glory of Jesus Christ, not our own, not our own. The Old Testament prophet Amos asked this question, can two walk together except they be agreed? We have to recognize the personality of the Holy Spirit, his purpose, his, his passions in order to walk in step with him. That's the personality of the Holy Spirit. I also want to look at, again, the history. Each person in here has a history. Each person you walk past in life has a history. Stuff they've been through, right, that determines the way they act now. You know, I, it's my pet peeve, but you've probably watched uh, shows and series of shows, episode after episode, and there's all this action, and then all of a sudden out of the blue, there's an episode, it's like a flashback episode. I hate them. Right. Just tell me in five minutes what happened in this person's life so we can get back to the action. Yet it's important because in these shows, what they're showing is this is what happened to that person that made them who they are. Right. This is their history. This is why they behave the way they do. But I, I say all that because when you get to know somebody, you look at their history. Right. It shouldn't surprise us that the Bible presents a history where the Holy Spirit is present throughout. Because there's, here's the thing about the Holy Spirit in history. St. Basil the Great once said he coexisted with the Father and Son before the ages. And even if you could imagine anything beyond the ages, you'll discover that the Spirit is even further beyond. But the Holy Spirit's presence throughout Scripture, his, his actions and history throughout Scripture, they powerfully inform us, okay, who is the Holy Spirit and what does it mean for me? And he's present as far back as creation. He's the first member of the Trinity mentioned by name in the Bible back at creation, verse 2 of your Bible. And if you continue through the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit makes appearances. But under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, God would spend, send the Holy Spirit for specific tasks, specific missions that required endurance or power. You'll see again and again in the Old Testament this phrase, the Spirit of the Lord came upon. You see it on all kinds of people, right? From King David to King Saul. But an example I often think of is, is Samson, right? The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson and he took on a lion, right? Don't do this at home. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. Not only that, he picked up a jawbone and defeated a thousand Philistines. It was like Bruce Banner becoming the Hulk, right? The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, but it was only for a time. It was temporary and it was external. That's why we see in Psalms, David praying, don't take your spirit from me in Psalm 51. You know, some centuries later, the disciples had the same emotions and feelings about Jesus. Don't leave us. He had predicted his betrayal. He had spoken of his death and his coming sacrifice. This was, this was troubling. They couldn't imagine life without him. This wasn't just their teacher. This wasn't just their counselor. This was their friend. They didn't want him to leave. But Jesus, he makes a couple powerful promises. First, he promises that when he goes to heaven, he's going to prepare a place for them. That in itself is awesome, right? That he's going to go to heaven and prepare a place for us. But then he also makes a second promise. In John 14, 16, which we read, he's talking about the Holy Spirit when he says, I will pray to the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Jesus promised that after he 
was dead and gone, the Spirit would come. And we see in this verse two things. That the Holy Spirit is internal. This is what Jesus spoke of when he said abide. Paul makes this even more clear in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Or Romans 8 where he says the Spirit dwells in us. The Holy Spirit's also permanent. The word abide in the Greek means to stay in a given place, to continue, to dwell. And Jesus said that he would send the Holy Spirit and it would abide forever. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't just come upon us or come alongside us. He comes in us and works through us. That's why Jesus didn't just say that the Holy Spirit would come. He said when he comes, those who receive him would receive power. And that power, is, it's a game changer. Like you read Ephesians 3.20 where God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond all we could ask or think because of the power that's at work in us, because of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. But what is this work? What is this work he does that it's speaking to? You could come up with a, a, a long list. I just want to hit on four briefly. Because after all, after meeting somebody for the first time, you're getting to know them. Usually it's not long for you to ask, okay, what do you do, right? What do you do for a living? What's on the Holy Spirit's resume? What's his LinkedIn skills and endorsements, right? <laughs> if you go through scripture, you see it's a lengthy list. But four quick ones. He's our helper. It says in John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I have said to you. He's an advocate. John 16, 8 says, in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. We see he's a comforter. In Acts 9, 31, it says, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. He's also our guide. It says in John 16, 13, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't do all this work and operate in all these ways so that we can stagnate, right? He does all this so that we can operate on another level. You talk about mysteries and verses that blow my mind. In John 14, 12, Jesus says to the disciples, verily, truly, very truly, maybe verily in one translation, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. If you stop there, that's mind-blowing enough. But then he goes on to say, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. How could he say that? Right? I've heard some say it's because there's so many of us. Right? He, he was in one place. Right? He could do some crazy stuff. But as the church, we can do even greater things in number. But the way he could say you'll do even greater things is because in his next breath, he promises that when he goes to the Father, he'll ask the Father to send us the Holy Spirit. Again, in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Ephesians 3.20 says that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that's at work in us. What does this mean for us? You know, if I was the enemy of the church, if I was the enemy of God, my chief strategy would be to create a disconnect between the church and the Holy Spirit, to unplug the church from his power, to cause it to confuse who the Holy Spirit is, to forget his influence, his relationship. If I could get the church to operate in its own human strength and power, it'll only get human results. It'll only operate in the natural. A church that relies on human strength will quickly become irrelevant. It'll become a social club. Its people will become dry and weak. 
A.W. Tozer, I'm going to quote him twice in the same sermon. He once said, we may as well face it. The whole level of spirituality among us is low. We have measured ourselves by ourselves until the incentive to seek higher plateaus in the things of the spirit is all but gone. We have imitated the world, sought popular favor, manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord, and produced a cheap and synthetic power to substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's powerful to me that in in Acts, Jesus is again speaking to his followers. And he's just given them, right? They're fresh off the Great Commission. He's given them the greatest mission ever been handed down in history, right? To make disciples of all nations, right? To reach people with the gospel. The greatest mission any of us will ever receive, and we have received it, (laughs) amen? But he tells them, just giving them the most important mission of all time. He says, wait on it. Only get to that work once you've received the Spirit and it's been activated, right? Because the Holy Spirit was imperative. The Holy Spirit was of utmost importance. And I don't think we would admit it with our mouth. But I think we often act as if we don't need him or we don't expect him to do much. Again, in John chapter 7, Jesus is saying to people that believed in him, were there to worship him, God the Father, worship him. And Jesus says, it's good you know how to worship. It's good you know my word. But let me introduce you to the spirit. Have you been introduced to the spirit? Maybe for the longest time in your walk with Christ, you feel like you've been missing something. You just keep stumbling again. You, you must be missing something. Or you feel like you should be closer to God. There's something missing. What if that something is, in fact, someone? What if it's the Holy Spirit? I think a lot of us, we know of him. But my prayer in that through the, this series and worshiping together, we wouldn't just come to know and understand more about the Holy Spirit, but that we would experience more of his presence in our life. I think most of us need to, to know more of him We simply need to know him, walk in relationship, in step with him. Sure, my hope is that you come to a deeper understanding, but I also hope that you begin to walk in relationship and communion. Paul, he he writes the church in Corinth twice. He's coming to the end of his second letter, and he he says that, that he prays that they would have the communion of the Holy Spirit, that it would be with you all. So my question is, is the communion of the Holy Spirit, is that present in your life? What does that look like? What does that word communion mean in the Greek? Listen to these words. This word communion in the Greek is defined by fellowship, companionship, communication, intimacy, sharing together, partnership, close mutual association, and camaraderie. If I could have the worship team come up, do those words... Do they describe your relationship with the Holy Spirit? Fellowship, companionship, communication, intimacy, sharing together, partnership, close mutual association, camaraderie. Whether it does or it doesn't, that's available to you. Again, we're going to get into the function of the Holy Spirit. We spoke to it some when we talk about the advocate, the helper. We're going to talk about the gifts. We'll talk about the the fruit. But again, tonight I wanted to focus on this reality. The Holy Spirit is a person. If it was a a power, if it was some kind of force, then again, it would be something that we would just lust for more of. But since the Holy Spirit is a person, the perspective we should operate in is love. And how can I give more of myself to this person, the Holy Spirit? There's not some cheat code in the back of your Bible, right, where you just up, down, up, down, left, right, not any of that, where you can just unlock this. It's a relationship. For some of us, we simply need to 
begin to work in speaking terms, right? This Holy Spirit that's with us and never leaves us or forsakes us. We've been so silent for so long, many of us. Begin to operate in speaking terms. Relationship takes communication. Practice time in his presence. Practice time in God's word. Take time to talk and take time to listen. Take time to thank and take time in silence and take time to do what we're about to do. Worship and praise him. He, like God, is good and worthy of our praise. Like any relationship, we got to open the door of our heart and let him in. So tonight, as we're going to stand, we're going to close with the song, Holy Spirit. We're going to sing the chorus. And if, and if you would say, man, I've, I've neglected the Holy Spirit. I want to walk in relationship with the Holy Spirit. I would just encourage you, as we stand, if we could stand as we're about to go into worship, simply lift your hands where you're at. Maybe at your side. Maybe that's all you're comfortable with. Maybe over your head. Maybe come to the altar. Get on your knees. But, man, the Holy Spirit, he's available. He doesn't want us in this Christmas season to just observe this gift of Jesus Christ. He wants us to begin to experience the life that Jesus promises, to begin to unwrap it. And Holy Spirit, tonight we recognize that you're a person within the Godhead. And the proper perspective isn't how can I get more of you, but how can I give myself more fully in love? We thank you that you gave yourself fully for us, God, at the cross. And God, I pray that we would pursue you and your spirit here tonight. We sing these words, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. You're welcome in this place. But God, we know that revival in this place is going to start with a revival in our hearts. That walking in power as a church is going to be come through the empowerment that comes in our hearts through your spirit, God. You know, Peter said in Acts, we'll get to it in these later sermons. When the Holy Spirit fell, he said, hey, repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Spirit. If you're here and you've never repented, let's pray that prayer. That Jesus would be Lord and Savior. If you've never been baptized, guess what? You'll be baptized next week at the worship night. And God, if you, if you want to stir up the spirit in your heart, guess what? I'll be here to pray. The Hiltzes are in the back to pray. Whether it's that or anything that you want to lift up before God. But let's lift ourselves and our hearts and our minds up to God here in this place as we sing these words. Holy Spirit.